if you so choose. And uh, just help us as your people to bring you glory as you take us through the waters or through the fire. And uh, thank, we'll thank you that you go through that with us. Help us to bring you glory. Now, Lord, as we open your word once again in in a, a letter written so long ago in the, by the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church, we pray that you would open our minds, open our ears, open our hearts to receive what you have for us. And may it change us, make us more like our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we are in the book of Philippians, and chapter 3 will be in verses 17 through 21, the end of the, of the chapter today. But I want to ask you a question to begin with. That, that is this. Who do you seek to imitate? Who do you seek to imitate? Uh, it, it struck me this morning I was, as I was kind of going through this in my head again. The last couple of weeks we were in Mississippi with Carol's mom and sister, and we went to the church that they go to. And the second week we were there, so last Sunday, they had uh, kids take over the worship time. So the kids led in uh, all the music, did the announcements, uh, had uh, a young man that sh- shared a short message. It was, it was really good, really, really encouraging. When they were singing the songs, they were more kid songs, so I wasn't really familiar with them. But they had up on the screens people that were kind of doing motions with the songs, as oftentimes does happen with kids' songs. And, uh, and I, I was trying to sing the song. I wasn't doing the motions. And then one of the guys says, we notice you're not really doing the motions out there, so come on, folks. And I'm trying to... I'm way away from what they're doing. And I was thinking, it's just too hard to imitate that. It's, it's going by so fast. Maybe it's my age. Give me a little, give me a moment, you know. It's a very observable fact that people tend to imitate those that they admire or those that they consider as setting an example of the way things should be done or the styles that should be followed or the goals that should be achieved in life. Imitation. And, and you can see this in a lot of areas. I mean, you can see it in clothing that becomes popular because of a particular person that is wearing something, usually a celebrity or someone like that. Hairstyles become popular because a certain celebrity, well-known person, gets a, a new do. I think back, uh, this shows my age, to the Dorothy Hamill haircut. And every woman you saw for ever, it seemed like, had a Dorothy Hamill haircut. You know, they love to imitate that kind of thing. You observe it at sporting events. You look in the stands and you see, and it doesn't matter whether it's basketball or baseball or football or whatever, you see all these people wearing jerseys and on the back they have the one that they want to emulate, you know, their number and their name. And don't, we all know this. None of the people wearing the jerseys in the stand could actually emulate what they're doing. But they like to imitate them in that sense. You can even see it at the level of Little League World Series. Now, I, I, I admit, I like watching Little League World Series. Every year I try to watch as much of it as I can. And uh, even there you can see it. Uh, I, you see these kids nowadays, 11, 12 years old, and they walk up to the plate and they've got their bat, but on their hands they have batting gloves. Those didn't exist when I was a kid playing little league, but they step up to the plate and they, you know, strike one. They step away from the plate, tighten up, tighten up, step up to the plate, Give them that look like I know what I'm doing. Strike two. Step away. You know, why do they do that? Because they're imitating big league players that do that every strike or every pitch. My watch was telling me there was an emergency. 
it was lying to me. Computers, I guess, can lie. I, I particularly noticed it this year when I was watching the Little League World Series. Uh, these young kids, 11, 12 years old, get up and let's say that they hit a home run. They do that. And the kid starts moving away from home base and flips the bat. Where did they get that from? Imitation of big league players. It just is, is, is striking. So we, we see it. Uh, you know, that people imitate others that they think are cool or right or good or worthy of pursuing. And by the way, that is the very subject that Paul is addressing in our text for today. Be careful who you imitate, is how I've titled this uh, section. But this is what Paul is talking about in this final paragraph. He's, in chapter 3, he's you know, warned them about false teachers. And then he says, you know, I used to be like them. And then I came to know Christ. And everything changed for me. The gospel transformed the way that I view life. The gospel changed everything for me. Everything I thought was, was a gain, I now consider a loss. And everything that I thought was a loss is now a gain in Christ. In fact, Christ is the greatest gain. And then he says, you know, one thing I do is I want to know him more fully. I want to gain him and know him in every aspect of my life. And, and that's even in being conformed to his death and in his sufferings. I, I want to be like Christ. And he says, this means that I keep pressing toward the goal of the upward call of God. That great prize when we cross the finish line and we go into the arms of Jesus and that's kind of where we ended in verse 16 in our study, and we're just going to pick it up in verse 17 again. So let me read 17 through 21, and then we'll kind of break it down together. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Paul writes about imitation in this passage, those who should be imitated and those who shouldn't be imitated. And, and he also takes up the idea that, you know, there should be things in our lives that drive us in who we are imitating. So he begins with examples that should be followed and then goes to examples that should be avoided and he ends with the true motives of those who know Christ the motivation for life. So it begins again with the examples to follow. That's verse 17. And, and that reads again, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Examples to follow. So for the third time, I, you probably didn't pick this up, but I'm going to just point it out to you. It's encouraging to me. For the third time, verse 1, verse 13, and now here in verse 17, Paul dresses the Philippian believers, the church, as brothers, as brothers, reminding them that they, along with him, are part of the same spiritual family, and that he has a deep family connection to them. He, 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 he does that, and then he just launches into the main point that he's making in this paragraph about imitation. You know, I was thinking about this. In the early church, even more than today, believers needed practical guides, mentors, if you will, uh, for faith and conduct. Well, why? Well, they didn't possess the completed canon of Scripture like we do. Right? Most of the New Testament has not been written yet when he's writing this. Some letters have been written, they've been being passed around, but the canon of Scripture that we know, they didn't have. They had the Old Testament, and so... 
you know, much of the New Testament is being taught and preached and written as uh, uh, during this first century. And, and so it was all the more important that they have models that they could imitate in faith and conduct. And so Paul commands the Philippians, and in that sense commands us, that we're joined, to join together in imitating his faith and his conduct. In fact, the, the, words, the words translated in the ESV as join in following my example. I'm not sure what your translation may have. But it literally reads this way. Become fellow imitators of me. Become fellow imitators of me. And the noun that is translated as fellow imitators, uh, sumimetai, you don't need to write that down. It, it's only found here in all of Greek literature. Not just the New Testament, of all Greek literature that we know of. Only place. Paul, I've told you this before, he likes to make up words that fit the context in which he's teaching. And that's what he does here. Now, you can get the idea of imitation from that word, mimetai, right? It sounds kind of like imitate, mimetai. But it has this little prefix at the beginning of it. In, in Greek, it's a... S-U-N, and it transposes into English, and, and that stresses the need. It's a, it's a word that means together or along with is the idea of it, and it, it stresses the need of believers joining together in a community of believers in following Paul's example. Now, some think that what Paul's saying to them is that they are to join themselves to him in following Christ's example. And I think that's ultimately true. And while it is certainly true that all believers are to model their lives after the Lord Jesus, right? We all agree with that? Okay. By the way, Josh, Julie, you're in the amen corner as far as I'm concerned, so there better, better be some amens come out. There's just a real history right there in that corner, so. You sit in that seat, it's like you'll get... You'll get a buzz every now and then. Amen. Amen. Okay. That is true. But I think the context would imply that Paul has himself in mind when he says this, that they are to follow his example. In fact, that's the words that he uses. Join in imitating me, he says. Why does he not say join in imitating me like I imitate Christ? So uh, imitate Christ. Well, because... He's been in the context in chapter 3 of his own example of one who used to trust in ceremony and ritual and in the law and prestige, you know, that religious resume that he had before he came to know Christ. And then he expresses the transformation that had taken place in his life. So this context, verse 17 through 21, is following that. It's not like it's dislocated from it. So that's why he says, join in following my example. You guys join together, follow me, imitate me. Now, I think it is similar to his exhortation to the church at Corinth where he wrote this uh, in chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. Ultimately, that is the direction, right? And, and by the way, when Paul says this, this is, doesn't come from egotism. You know, Paul is always strongly Christological in his thinking. And, and, and it comes out, it's like, I follow Christ, so if you follow me, you're going to be following Christ. And hasn't Christ already been seen as the model to follow in this letter? It was read, I was going to mention this, but Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Christ is seen as the most excellent model. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then Brian read those verses in Philippians 2. But notice, in the same way that they were to follow Paul, as an example, they were to keep their eyes on others who conducted their life, just like Paul did. Did you pick that up? Join in following my example, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Do you notice the plural, those and us, those and us, along with me. So he's talking singular, now he's talking plural, and 
keep your eyes on those people. And, the, and by the way, the Greek word that is translated as keep your eyes on, skopeo, uh, means to watch carefully or observe with great scrutiny. I mean, we get the English word scope from it, right? So if you're a hunter, put a scope on your rifle, you're out there in the woods hunting moose or deer or whatever it is, you, you put your eye on that scope so that you can bring it in, so that you can see every detail, so you can see if it's a legal animal or not. Because when you're at 600 yards away and you're looking with your bare eyes, it's like, oh, it has antlers. <laughs> but is it 50 inches? Does it have three or four brow times? It's like, I've got to get my scope on it. I've got to bring it in in detail. And that's what he's saying Keep your eyes on. Scope out those other people who are like us. It's interesting. He didn't say like me. Now, what's going on here? Why the plural and the singular and all of that business? Well, I think what he's basically saying is, follow my example. And you remember Timothy? And you remember Epaphroditus? I, I wrote to you just a, a page back, you know, in chapter 2 and verse... 19 through the end of the chapter, how Timothy were examples, and uh, Timothy was an example, and Epaphroditus was an example. They were both examples of um, a single-minded service and a willingness to suffer in service for Christ. So I think they're part of the us. But there are others, those within the congregation, who might they be? Well, chapter 1 and verse 1 started out with Paul and Savannah and Timothy to the church being in Philippi along with the bishops and deacons, the overseers, the leaders. So there are others he's bringing it in. That, I think, is important. The word example itself is, is the Greek word tupos. We get the English word type from it, right? Type. And uh, it originally... Uh, it signified the impression that, the, or a mark that was made as a result of a blow of some sort. Like, if I were to get in a fist fight with someone, which I haven't since I was in seventh grade, and, uh, you know, I had this ring on, and I hit them on the side of the face, that ring on my finger would leave an impression. In fact, you could maybe see a CSI program where they're able to catch the criminal because of the, you know, the mark of the ring that's left on the the cheek or something like that. That's how that word was originally used in the sense of the mark uh, that was the result of a blow or what was formed by pressing down on something. I was thinking yesterday when I came in, my wife and I had gone to Girdwood for breakfast. We got back and it had, of course, been snowing some. And when I walked across the parking lot, I could see my shoe prints in the snow. That was a, a type. A mark left by pressure of my foot, you know, in the snow. That's how that word was originally used. Sometimes so it was used in a literal sense, as it was in John twenty twenty five in reference to the nail scars in the risen Lord's hands. In fact, the disciples had told Thomas, hey, we've seen the Lord. I don't believe you, he said. And this, this is what he then said to them. Unless I can put my finger in the mark, right? The mark in his hands, and that, or in the mark of the nails. That's the same Greek word, tupas, the, the place, the impression that was made from the nails in his hands and place my hand into his side or the, you know, it's, it's the mark of the nails, the the mark of the nails, the impression left that I won't believe unless I see the mark. Same word used there. But sometimes this word is used metaphorically, and it is used that way in our text here. The, the examples, the mark, the impression of certain people's lives on others. And so the change from the plural those and us to the singular, by the way, notice this. Look at those who walk like us, who are an example, not examples. What? What's going on? I thought that that is so cool by Paul. 
he's so brilliant because what he is saying is that you take these models, these exam, these people together, and they leave a singular impression. What is that singular impression? Follower of Christ Jesus. That's the way it should be. Well, I was thinking, this is a good reminder to us that we need to join ourselves to others that, you know, we see modeling the kind of life that honors Christ. We ought to be looking for people. That's what Paul's saying. Look for people who are modeling Christ living, Christ following. But it also serves as a warning, I think. And that warning would be that we not look to just one person to be that mentor, that model, that example. There is a danger in placing too much focus on just one mentor or one example. Uh, what if they fail to continue being a good example? What if they turn their back on the church and on the Lord? So let's look around. Even within our small group, we should be looking around for people who can serve as excellent examples of faithful Christian living. That's what Paul's saying in verse 1, or verse 17. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I can tell you I've had, uh, Pastor Tom and I have had multiple text conversations with Michael Baffery and the struggles that he's going through with cancer, returning and other possible cancer. And, and he's emphasized to us more than once. You guys are examples to me. I want, to, I want to have faith that you have and the joy that you have in the midst of trial and so on. And, and this last one, he mentioned Jane, who's now with the Lord. And I wish I would have told her before she went to be with the Lord that she was an example, a model for me. That's what we're talking about. Examples to imitate. But there are also examples to avoid, and that's verses 18 and 19. For many, he says, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Uh, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So once again, he warns them to watch out for false teachers, these examples, the many examples that they must avoid if they are to press on toward the goal of the upward prize in Christ, if they are to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. As there were examples to be imitated, so there are those that are to be avoided. And, and it's interesting, the many, you know, he says, for many. It's like, wow, that's kind of concerning, isn't it? I mean, I don't know how big the church in Philippi was at this time, but there are many that are out there that he's concerned that could infiltrate the church, whether they were already there or not, that they are to watch out for. They are to scope out in the same way. Uh, and he says that they will be recognized by the way that they walk. Did you pick that up? For many of whom I often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And that's not actually describing physical walking, that word perpetua means to conduct of life, the way that they live their lives. So the evidence of the danger of their teaching can be seen by the way that they behave. The fruit of their, you know, the fruit of their lives proves the corruption, if you will, of their teaching. That's what he's saying. They come in and they may have, they may sound good. They may have good rhetorical skills and convince people, but keep an eye on their lives because their lives will prove what they're really like. That's what he's saying. So there are frequent uh, warnings in the scriptures, in the New Testament particularly, that, that, you know, that false teachers will infiltrate the church and, and they will disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. In fact, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, puts it that way. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, 
For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. You've got to watch their lives. You ought to be watching the lives of your pastors. Make sure, you know, I mean, and if, if we're good models, follow our examples. And if we're not, don't, don't believe what we're teaching you. That's the idea of what he's saying. And the way then that false teachers are most easily recognized again is by the way they conduct themselves. Now, here's a, here's a pastor teacher telling you this. When my mind goes to what I listen to are words. I'm kind of a word guy. And I don't, I don't listen. Is that right doctrine? Is that wrong doctrine? Are they a little tweaked here? Are they a little tweaked there? But Paul's saying for normal Hopefully I'm normal. For everyone in the church, we don't just listen to their words. We look at their lives. We scope them out. And it's by the fruit of their lives, as I've already said, that the church can discern the truth or the error of their teaching. We sometimes want to reverse it, but check out their lives. And their lives will demonstrate what they really believe. So Paul has warned the Philippians, you know, uh, of the danger of the false teachers on numerous occasions. And then that's what he means when he says, you know, I often told you, if I were translating the Greek text, it was just, I was telling you. I've been telling you. So when, when did he do that? Well, he's already done it in the letter. He's warned them in the beginning of chapter 3. You know, he said, these guys are evil workers. They're dogs. They're, they're mutilators of the flesh. You know, he's warned them about them. When else say, well, I don't, when he was there, he warned them. When he planted the church, when he visited them, or if he wrote other letters to them, it's like, other letters? Yeah, that aren't in, intended to be in the New Testament. Paul probably wrote other letters. He was telling them. It was an ongoing telling of it. Not just one time, but multiple times he warned them. And it made me think of what Paul had said to the elders of the Ephesians church, uh, the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20, 28 through 31. Listen to this. And thank you, Joel, for putting it right up there. You can read, read it as I read it. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. So people come in, but even within the group itself, these false teachers rise up, not sparing the flock, and they are attempting to draw the disciples' way after them. So he says, be on the alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day and night to admonish everyone with tears. Paul not only taught the truth, but he warned against error. And he did it consistently and regularly. And that's what he's doing with this group. And in this warning, there's also the added dimension of reminding them of the danger with tears, just like he did with the Ephesian elders. I, I spoke to you with tears in my eyes. And he says it here, tears, klaxon, it literally means, or literally this was, I speak with weeping. I'm writing this with weeping. Tears are flowing from my eyes because I'm so concerned for you. And this word was commonly used of loud expressions of sorrow and and points out the intensity of Paul's care over the danger the false teachers had toward the church. To be honest with you, the Christian church overall has lost its sense of the danger of false teachers. Whoever wants to say whatever they want to say, oh, well, it sounds like it comes from God, okay. No. So, I wrote down five things about these false teachers that Paul, they're not my ideas, they're just right out of the text. First is their character. So if you're filling in your blanks, number one, their character. And then after that, after the word character, you could write in, right out of the text, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their character, 
They're enemies of the cross of Christ. And by cross, it's not limited to the actual wooden instrument on which Jesus suffered and died, right? Here, it signifies Christ's atoning death in all of its aspects. So some of the false teachers that he's warning them about were against salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and in his death, burial, and resurrection as being sufficient to make us right with God. They didn't agree with that because they could not conceive of a salvation that was not tied to and dependent upon meritorious good works, keeping the law. Well, that Paul and the Philippians knew exactly who these men were, I think is clear. He doesn't identify them by name or even group. He just says, watch out for these guys, these enemies of the cross of Christ. But I think, you know, they knew. It was clear to Paul. It was probably clear to the church in Philippi. It's not clear to the modern reader. Who, who are these false teachers? Um, neither the, this expression, the enemies of the cross of Christ, or the characterizations of verse 19 you know, identify them exactly. Who are they? But I think, even if we can't be absolutely certain, there are really only two options. One option is that they were Judaizers. And the other option is that they were Gentiles who were still maintaining some dualistic point of view about life. Now, let me explain that a little bit. So the Jewish false teachers who identified with the church were known as Judaizers. The first mentioned in Acts 15, the conference that happened in, in Jerusalem when they were mm, kind of arguing about, was it, what do we have to require of the Gentiles coming you know, to, in, into the faith? Do we require them to be circumcised? Do we require them to you know, avoid certain foods and that kind of thing? So those people are referred to as Judaizers. And then they began to go out into the Gentile churches and carry that kind of doctrine with them. They argued that the gospel alone was not sufficient to save. Circumcision and the keeping of the law were also necessary. That's not unlike churches today uh, that might say, well, yeah, of course, we're saved by grace through faith. But, anytime you hear that but, be watchful. But you've got to be baptized. But you've got to join the church. But you've got to keep these Christian teachings. But, you know, the list goes on and on. And so it's very similar to that. And uh, they would have required circumcision, keeping the law, the rituals, regulation, the special days, etc. But Paul's already referred to them and he says they're dogs and they're evil workers and and the, the mutilation. They're all concerned about, you know, the physical circumcision when God wants circumcision of the heart. And though they would have thought of themselves as teachers of God's flock, in reality, they were mongrel dogs who were decimating God's people. Now, the Gentile false teachers would have been those who infiltrated the church, but they came out of pagan Gentile. Gentile thinking, Greek thinking, and a dualistic view of life. What do I mean by that? Well, generally, that means this, that anything that was material, including the human body, anything that was material is not permanent, and therefore it's, it's probably defective, and it's, it's, it's not spiritual, it's evil. But anything that is soul or spirit or immaterial, well, that's spiritual. And so they would bring this teaching in and you know it, it just it, it would means like what well, doesn't matter how you live it doesn't matter what you do with your body Paul fought that with the Corinthian church it doesn't matter that the guy's sleeping with his father's wife or that you know some of them were going to the pagan temples and uh, participating with prostitutes in the worship of the pagan god because hey the body's going to go away so it doesn't matter or it doesn't matter what you eat, you know, you could gorge yourself, you get drunk. That doesn't, that's not a big deal because that just doesn't matter because it's all physical. It's all material. And that's going to be eliminated. So 
you know, those are the two options that we have. They were either Judi Judaizers or these false teachers that had this kind of pagan Greek background that they hadn't turned from. So the enemies of the cross of Christ, which Paul warned the Philippians to avoid, were either, here's two terms for you, legalists or libertines. Legalists or libertines. And if you don't know this, the same warning holds true for the church today. It does. It holds true for the church today. We must remain ever vigilant to be securely tied to the true gospel and fight against any incursion by those who diminish the work of Christ on the cross for sinners by adding to it some good work or taking away from the transformation of the gospel that it brings to, to us by suggesting that it doesn't matter how we live here and now, it only matters that we get to go to heaven. You've got to be watchful. The end they face. That's number two. The end they face. It's right out of the text. Their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. And the word end there is the same Greek word that he used in, in verbal and noun form in, in chapter 3 when he was talking about perfection and maturity. Tell us. Pastor Greg has talked about it in multiple sermons out of the Sermon on the Mount. This word that means end, goal, completion, maturity, perfection, uh, used uh, many times in various ways in the scripture. Their end, their goal, their completion is destruction. And this is an absolute destruction, like a ceasing to exist, annihilation. Having rejected the one and only basis of, of salvation, the cross of Christ, because, what did he say? They're enemies of the cross of Christ. All false teachers, whether Jewish or Gentile, whether legalists or libertines, they all face the same end. And there are many passages in the scripture that describe that end as hell, the lake of fire. It's described as a place of torment and pain, a place of absolute darkness and in intense suffering, it's a place where the worm dieth not, etc., etc. Lots of different descriptions. But I think Second Thessalonians is the best, is the best description. Chapter 1 and verse 9, where Paul says that God will judge those who do not obey the gospel with eternal destruction. That tells you it's not a cessation, right? It's not a cessation. It's eternal. It goes on and on and on. What goes on and on and on? Destruction. Destruction goes on and on. And then he describes that destruction in a sense. Away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. I, I think that the greatest pain that anyone could ever face would be separated from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. To know that they could have obeyed the gospel, the call to believe, repent and believe in the gospel, to believe in Jesus, that they could have been in the presence of the Lord forever and it, eternally experience the glory of his might. That is destruction. Number three, the God they serve. The God they serve. Right after that, their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. That's what Paul says in the text. The word belly, colia, it, we get the word colon from it, right? It's the, the gut. It's the, the abdomen. Uh, anatomically, at least, that's what it would be. But sometimes it refers to not to a physical thing. In fact, it's not here. It's referring to a gratification of the body. A gratification of the body. Sexual and physical desires. The, the lust of the eyes. The lust of the flesh. Uh, the boastful pride of life would be part of this belly lusting, this God that they have. And, and if it's the Jewish false teachers that Paul's thinking of, then it, re, it may refer to their focus on keeping the Jewish dietary laws. And if they did really good at that, kept all the rituals and the special days and so on, their pride just went up and up and up and up. 
If it's the Gentile false teachers that he's referring to, it would be a reference to their unrestrained um, pursuit of sexual pleasures, which was characteristic of the pagan worship that they would have been part of before. It takes little thought to see how this description, I, I believe, is characteristic of our own culture. I mean, the pride of the elitist and the cultured people in our, in our society who see themselves as so much better, so much more than us, right? That's that same, their God is their belly, their pride in what they have accomplished, the degrees that they have, etc., etc., the education that they have. Or the pursuit of sexual and physical desires and imaginations that runs amok in our culture. Isn't that the same thing? I mean, it's like you can hardly look at anything anymore without it being a focus on sexual and physical gratification. Number four, the shame they bear. The shame they bear. And right after that, the glo- they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame. Now, most, most interpreters, including myself, take the word glory here in the sense of their pride, their boasting. So Paul says that the very things that, which they find to boast in about themselves are, in fact, shameful. <laughs> it's shameful. And so if it's the Jewish false teachers, then it would probably be a reference to their boasting in their circumcision, in their keeping of all the rituals and the regulations of law. The same things, by the way, that Paul had previously boasted in before he came to know Christ, that then he describes as rubbish, right? Stinking rubbish that needs to be thrown out. So such a boast in such things will only lead to shame before God at judgment. Look what I did. Lord, didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do that in your name? Didn't I do this good work? Didn't I keep all these regular? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. What they boast in, they glory in, will be shameful before God. That's true of anyone who is a legalist. If it's the Gentile false teachers who are in mind, then it would be a, ref- a reference to their boasting in their freedom to pursue anything that would bring them pleasure. Because, hey, the body doesn't matter. It's all temporal. It's all going to go away. All that matters is forever. But, you know, the truth is with them, the things that they're most proud of would be the worst perversions, Right? The worst perversions, unfaithfulness in marriage, sexual gratification with impurity and dishonor, homosexual and lesbian behavior. Yes, I actually said that in public. These are perversions according to the scripture. Gorging on food until you throw up. That was part of their practices as well. No, no constraints. Why? Because it just doesn't matter. Shameful, and they will be shamed before God. Fifth, the disposition they display. The disposition they display. And right after that, they have minds set on earthly things. Now, the, the, the term, the Greek term translated mindset, it's the word for now. I, I mentioned it as we've been going through this book. It's a word that Paul uses like eight or ten times in this letter. And it's, it's used by him to describe not only a particular mental attitude, but also basic goals and aspirations. Uh, it's, it's, it's more than just a thought. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of viewing life. In these people, he says have their minds, their way of life, focused on earthly things, which is a reference to that which is temporary and transient. And it stands in contrast to what is heavenly and eternal. Their minds are here and now. This is all that matters. And James would describe people like this as 
enemies of God. He, he said in James 4, 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world, which is all about the temporary, earthly things, is enmity with God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And, and John wrote in his first epistle in chapter 2 and verse 15, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But I think what Paul said to the Colossian church in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, says it as well as can be said, better than me. If then you've been raised up with Christ, in other words, if you're a Christian, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, same, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And that's where we're going next in our text in chapter 3, about what awaits us and what motivates us. So, you know, the Jewish false teachers, they were focused on the ceremonies and the rituals and the festivals and the special days, which were a mere shadow, as how Paul describes it in Colossians 2, a mere shadow of the things to come, and could only give them glory temporarily. And the Gentile libertines focused on the passing pleasures of sin, which also could only bring one satisfaction or glory or fulfillment for a very short period of time. It's a, it's a, are you going to view things in the long term, heavenly, eternal, or are you going to view things like, oh man, we're 1208, I'm eight minutes past, we better stop now. Come on, 12 o'clock, isn't that the moment? No, we don't have any Sunday school to worry about today, so we're finishing this, just so that you know. Thank you. What about the amen corner? Okay, okay. So these descriptions are in contrast with the destiny and character of true believers, what he's just said about those that they are to avoid. And, and uh, it highlights specifically the example of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and others that they should be seeking to imitate. But in verses 20 and 21, he really is giving the motivation for true believers. I mean, the contrast between the earthly and the heavenly spheres begun in verse 19 is completed, in a sense, in these last two verses. In high terms, describing the destiny and the character of the godly examples and what should be true, what should be true of every child of God. So, how's he put it? But our citizenship is in contrast. You notice it's contrast, right? Here's these guys to avoid. In contrast, in contrast, our citizenship is in heaven. That means in the eternal. And, and from it, we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that in, enables him to subject all things to himself. Number one there, present position. Present position. And after that, we are citizens of heaven. Isn't that what he's saying? Our citizenship is in heaven. We're citizens of heaven. <laughs> That's good stuff. In this term, citizenship, uh, it's only found in the New Testament. Interesting. He used a, a verbal form of it in chapter 1, verse 27, where he basically is saying, conduct your life as a citizen. But the only place it's found in the New Testament. And it refers to the place or the location and when in which one has the right to be a citizen. John MacArthur put it this way, it's, it's where one had their official status, the commonwealth where one's name is recorded on the register of citizens. I could pull out my wallet right now and pull out this, this block of things, and dead in the center of that would be my registration as a citizen of Alaska who has the right to vote, Right? That's the idea, right? I have the right of a citizen of the state of Alaska to vote in elections, to choose who 
will um, rule over us, so to speak. And that's the idea. And though believers, you know, presently live in this world, or we are living in this world, right? Yeah. Jesus said, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one in the world. So we're presently living in this world, but we're citizens of the heavenly commonwealth. Our citizenship isn't the world. Other descriptions of it in the scriptures were pilgrims passing through. We're aliens, you know. We hear an awful lot about citizenship and illegal aliens in, in our culture right now. It's a big deal what's happening at the border. People want to get in and you know, work towards citizenship even though they want to come in illegally. You know, it's, it's like, that's, our, that's the world. That's the world. Our citizenship isn't here. It's in heaven, even though we live here now. We've already been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Greg's been talking about the kingdom of God. We're presently members of it. It's the kingdom that is now and not yet, right? So we live here now, but we should be living as citizens of the forever. That's what Pastor Greg has been stressing. Number two, continuing expectation. We look to the coming of Christ. That's what he says in our text. We await the Savior, right? Our expectation is he's coming again. And that's been the expectation of believers from the time that Jesus was with the disciples and he ascended up into the heaven. And it is our expectation until he returns. <laughs> the angel had said to the disciples as they were watching Jesus go up into the heavens, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, it will be physical, it will be visible, he's going to come again. That is our expectation. I mean, Jesus had promised the disciples he was going away and he's preparing a place for them, but he was coming back to get them, to take them to be with him forever. That is our hope. That is our expectation. We await it. And this word await, and some translations have eagerly await. So maybe a better translation. It expresses the expectation of believers that they must maintain until Jesus comes. It's interesting. This word in particular, apodecomai, that doesn't matter to you. But it's used eight times in the New Testament, six times by Paul. And every time that he uses it, it's focusing on the definite future and eschatological end of believers. Listen to it. And, and you're not going to have these verses, I don't think, uh, Joel. So I'll just mention them. Christians eagerly await the revealing of the sons of God, according to Romans eight nineteen. They await the sonship described as the redemption of the body, Romans 8.23. The future hope, Romans 8.25. The hope of the righteous, uh, of righteousness, Galatians 5.5. The revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7. And here in our text, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ coming for us. That is our expectation. Are you living with that expectation? Or has it become dim? Don't set your mind on the earthly things. Set your mind on the heavenly things. What does that mean? Well, in part that means keep looking for Jesus coming. Be thinking, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. The third thing, glorious transformation. Glorious transformation. We are a promised a body like Christ. <laughs> the older we get, the more we like that. I, I would love to be able to jump up and down in, in celebration of that right now, but I can't because my knees hurt too bad. I used to be able to jump off this platform without a thought, but I know if I do that, my back's going to go, oh, you shouldn't have done that. I was putting away some lawn furniture and that kind of stuff this 
earlier in the week after we uh, returned, and it was like uh, every step I was taking, my knees were saying, stop it, stop it, stop it. So, you know, you get older and you realize it more. And most of us are, we're not kids anymore. So we feel that all the more. And, and that's okay. It's not wrong to be looking forward to a body that is built for the eternal that will never disintegrate or corrupt again. Get rid of these. Not have to go, you know, turn up your hearing. All of those kinds of things. Wouldn't that be great? We'll get a body like the body of the Lord Jesus. But the point of that, it, you know, that's a legitimate. And, and young people don't get it quite as much as old people. It's like, that's a good thing to long for. be great to run through the meadows in the glorious land and, you know, climb hills and, and, and do whatever. A body built for the eternal, not a body that will corrupt anymore. But it, it is tied to the most important thing, isn't it? Jesus' return. And, and it's when he returns that that final transformation of the gospel will occur for us. The final saving act, if you will, of the weighted Savior when he gives us our incorruptible and immortal bodies. And he, he's able to do it. He's able to do it. Why? Because he's got the power to subject, subject all things to himself. No wonder he has a name that is above every name. No wonder every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, let me land this long flight. It was kind of like the Anchorage to Atlanta flight that I was just on recently. Long, but you encouraged? Okay, okay. Good to know. As believers... uh, just kind of wrapping chapter 3 up, if you will. As believers, we are to press toward the goal to gain the prize. That was the previous paragraph. And we must look to godly examples and, and also avoid, you know, bad examples. Those that would lead us astray. And finally, we must focus on the glorious hope that is ours at the return of Christ. The, the transformation of our bodies into conformity with his and then, you know, then, and only then, regenerated, regenerated fully in spirit and body will be suited for the eternal. And I think more Christians today are more eagerly awaiting the return of the Lord than ever before. And I think it is because of the, the, where our world's at. People are saying, he could come, right? He could come. He may be coming any day. That's right. That's been true ever since he went up into heaven. But we feel it more now because of where our world's at. So let's long for the return of Christ. But while we long for the great hope to be realized upon his return, we must also be faithful until that day. I mean, I can think of no better words than what Paul wrote in his epistle to Titus. And then I'll pray. This is chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. Sums it up. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, awaiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's the here and now, and that's the forever. Lord, we are thankful for your word. What encouragement that you had a man write down so very long ago that is just as encouraging for us today as to those that it was written to in that day. These are your eternal truths. And they encourage us, they convict us, they lift us up, or sometimes they slam us down because of our failures. 
But we're thankful that you've opened the scriptures to us today and that we've been encouraged by it. And Lord, I, I do pray if there's someone here who's not truly trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord, that they would do so today before it's too late, before they go before you in judgment and they feel the shame of their sin. Rescue them, Lord. Rescue them. And help us who know you to bring you on in glory each and every day until you come for us. So thank you, too, for the food that we're going to eat, your faithful provision of that. We give you praise for it all in Christ's great name. Amen. Thank you.